John chapter 5, starting in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He is a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Fastest growing group in America is a group that would label themselves spiritual but not religious. 
came out recently, uh, the Pew Research Center did, did a, a survey and they found that uh, over a quarter, 27% of Americans fall into this category of spiritual but not religious. And what's striking is that over, over the past five years that that category of people has, has grown tremendously. 19% five years ago to 27% today. It's a, it's a growing, it's the, it's the fastest growing, I'll call it civil religion in America. Spiritual but not religious. Now, what does that mean? What's also interesting is that category of people that they surveyed, a majority of them identify themselves with some religious group or denomination, but they don't practice, they don't attend services, so what does it mean? Well, spiritual but not religious is telling us something about our culture, where people are at. Spiritual but not religious means this. Spiritual, there's, a, there's an acknowledgement that there's something beyond us, that there's something supernatural or something beyond us where life is found, but not religious is the part that says, but I'm gonna find it on my own terms. I think that's the best way to understand that. Is that spiritual is I'm gonna find life, but I'm gonna identify with the God that I define on my own terms. And this is a fast growing group. And what it does is it puts us in a world that is not void of spirituality and not void of, of some, some life and what seems to be a spiritual activity, but it's really false signs of life. And so we're going to answer that question, what are the false signs of life when we live in an environment that has a lot of spirituality and life seeming to happen? Now, why do we ask this question? Why is what are the false signs of life the, the appropriate question for this very long monologue that Jesus gives? And the answer is that the center of this passage is the very concept of life and eternal life. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Then verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. Life is all over this monologue that Jesus gives. And what he's saying here is very important, right? An hour is coming, but is now here. What Jesus is saying is this resurrection life that he's describing is certainly a resurrection that'll happen at the end of time when a physical body is raised out of the grave. But what is so striking is that Jesus is saying that now that life is manifest to those who are spiritually dead. That this life is just not something we anticipate in the future. It's not just a resurrection life in the future, that it is something of very real substance now. That you can come alive now from your spiritual death. When you hear the voice of the Son of God, when you hear Jesus and believe. Now, Jesus is talking about life very specifically and explaining what this resurrection life is because he's speaking to the Jews who believe that they have this life. 
But he says to him, you think you have this life, but you don't. You have false signs of life. He's speaking to a people that that are saying, we have life. And Jesus is saying, no, you've got false signs of life. And those false signs are, you say you know the Father, God the Father. You say you study the scriptures diligently. And you say you have glory. The problem is, and we're gonna get into it, you have the Father. You think you have the Father, you don't have me. You think you understand the scriptures, you don't have me. You think you have glory, but it's a glory that's absent of me. And so what are the false signs of life? We're gonna start with a Christless spirituality. You know, why does Jesus launch into this really long monologue right after he heals the man at the pool on the Sabbath? Well, it's verse 18, right? It says that Jesus, that they were seeking to kill him because he was breaking the Sabbath and making himself equal to God. And so Jesus' response is, let me explain to you the Trinity, or at least part of it. Let me explain to you why I'm equal to God. Verse 19, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And he goes on to to explain that over and over. And what he's saying is, is that I and the father, that Jesus and the father are one. Perfect harmony, perfect oneness, perfect unity, right? One God, three persons. One God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So that when you read in the Bible, when you read the God of the Bible, you're talking about one God, but three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons, each with a specific role that make up one God. Now, why does Jesus launch into this and put so much significance on it? because he's speaking to a group of people that believe that they can know God, the Father, without Jesus the Son. And Jesus says, no, you can't know God without the Son. You can't know God the Father without Jesus the Son. It's impossible. Look at verses 37 to 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he had sent. Now, this is a strong rebuke. He's saying to these Jews, you don't know God. You don't know him. He says, his voice you have never heard, unlike Moses who heard God's voice. Jesus is the very word of God, but they couldn't hear God in Jesus. He says, his form you've never seen, unlike Jacob who saw God's form, that Jesus is the very manifestation of God and that they can't see God in Jesus. He says, you do not have his word abiding in you. Right? John 1, the word became flesh. He says, Jesus is the word of God and, and you don't have time for him, so therefore, You don't know God. Jesus is making an incredibly strong argument to this people that you cannot know God apart from Christ. Now, why is that so significant? What relevance does that have today, 2,000 or so years later? The words that Jesus spoke to these Jews, 
about the impossibility of knowing God apart from Jesus the Son. In 2005, Christian Smith and a couple researchers at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill did a massive research project on the religious beliefs of American teenagers. Now, this is about 10 years ago. So what I'm about to tell you, think about what that means, right? You've got teenagers in 2005, massive study. Those teenagers are now young adults, right? In their 20s. What they came up with after they did this massive research project among American teenagers is they, they finally at the end said the predominant religion of American teenagers is moralistic, therapeutic deism. And you say, what in the world does that mean? Let me help you here. Here are, are five major beliefs that they basically summed everything that was said from these teenagers up. Here are the five beliefs that would explain what that is. Number one, a God, who, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's where you'd get the deism part, okay? Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. That would be the moralistic part. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's the therapeutic part. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And here was the fifth major belief that came out of this study amongst teenagers. Good people go to heaven when they die. Christian Smith said this about what he calls it an amorphous faith, just a shapeless faith. He said this, this amorphous faith is about belief in a particular kind of God, one who exists, created the world, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in one's affairs, especially affairs in which one would prefer not to have God involved. Most of the time, the God of this faith keeps a safe distance. Now, there's no denominational headquarters or mailing address for this religion. But what I want you to see in, in our world, in our culture, is that this moralistic therapeutic deism that was coined in 2005 amongst teenagers, today who are in their 20s, is growing into this spiritual but not religious category. It's almost, it's, it's, it's just progressing which basically says there's life in, in some God or what you deem God to be and how you get there on your own terms. And Jesus is saying, no, you cannot know God the Father apart from Jesus Christ the Son. That's the false sign of life. The first one is a Christless spirituality. Now let's move on to the second false sign of life a Christless reading of scripture. Jesus identifies this false sign by challenging the way that the Jews are reading the scriptures. And he basically says two things. He says, you're reading them for the wrong reason and you're reading them in the wrong way. So let's start with, he says, you're reading them for the wrong reason. Look at verses 39 to 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, 
yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And Jesus is pointing out here that the primary motivation for them studying the scriptures is this hope of final acceptance by God. In fact, when we look at Jewish literature, over and over it says that the more you study the law, the more life you have. The more you, you uh, retain the law of God, the more you retain this life in the world to come. And so Jesus is saying this. He's insisting that there is nothing intrinsically life-giving about the studying of the scriptures. Let me say that again. There's nothing intrinsically life-giving about studying the scriptures if you fail to discern their purpose and their content. N.T. Wright, he says it this way. It is possible to allow the study of the text and of different interpretations of the text to become a substitute for allowing the text to bring us into the presence of the living God. Which means that you can love your doctrine and love your theology more than you love Jesus. Now, those two aren't pitted against one another. Doctrine and theology are good because it's the study of doctrine and theology that helps you know the Jesus you're called to follow. But it's possible to study doctrine and theology independent of Christ in a way that doesn't move you towards Christ, but moves you towards interpretations and arguments. Another way of saying it is this. Another way of saying it is that you can be loving your doctrine and theology because it draws you closer to Christ, or this is the other way, you can be loving your doctrine and theology because it distinguishes you or sets you apart from another group of people. Right? Doctrine and theology that draws you closer to Jesus because it tells you who he is at the core of his character. Or doctrine and theology that pushes you away from Christ because it's really about distinguishing yourself or setting yourself apart. You think about your vocation. Most vocations have a way that you can add titles to the end of your name, right? DMD, OTC, R3 fee, whatever it is. All the titles you can add to the end of your name. By what? Well, how do you get those titles? You study, you do seminars, you do some more schooling, you sacrifice. There's two reasons that you can do that, right? There's two reasons you can add titles to the end of your name. One can be to enhance your reputation, your marketability, your salary. Or the other is that you can add those titles to the end of your name to do your job better that actually helps your clients or your patients. So you add titles and certifications to the end of your name to, to perform a better surgery or to, to build a better building or to, to educate children better. The same thing with the scriptures. You can study the scriptures two different ways. You can study them to enhance your reputation to distinguish you from other people, to set you apart, maybe set you above other people, or you can dig in and study the scriptures and dig into doctrine and to dig into theology so that you can know Jesus better, so that you can love Jesus more, and so that you can share him with people more effectively. So there's a Christless reading of scripture that can be reading them for the wrong reason 
And the second thing Jesus says in this passage is that you can read them in the wrong way. You can read them in the wrong way. Look at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus says, Moses, the one that is your hope, he wrote of me. In the Gospel of Luke, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking with those two disciples. And what does Luke write? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures in the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus says the entire Bible is about him. The entire Bible is about him moving towards him. And one of the ways that we read it in the wrong way, or what I would say is a Christless reading of the scripture, is when we, when we make the Bible a book of moral examples to follow or of heroes that are worthy to emulate. And chiefly, this takes place in children's Bibles. And probably the chief story that this happens is David and Goliath. David and Goliath. So here, here is the Christless reading of David and Goliath. Little David, against all odds, mustered up courage, trusted God, mustered up courage, and defeated the evil and huge giant Goliath against all odds. So, go be like David. Be courageous and slay your Goliaths in your life. Okay, that is a Christless reading of that story. What does that story mean? Goliath is the representation of evil, the evil one. We typically get that right. But who are we? We're not David. We're the, little, we're the scared Israelites that are in their tents, shaking and paralyzed in fear before Goliath, unwilling to leave their tents. David is a picture of the Christ, the one who fights evil for us, who defeats evil for us. And what Jesus is saying here is that resurrection life, eternal life, this future life that we have now called eternal life is not in being courageous. It's in attaching yourself to the one who is courageous, who fights for you in Jesus. Now, there are children's Bibles that actually get this right. Jesus' storybook Bible is one of them, where Jesus is the hero of every story. There's another one. It's by Kevin DeYoung. Listen to the title of this one. How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. Now, that's a good title. That's a good title. How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. And in this one, in the story of Abraham, uh, which... Abraham, the one who received God's covenant promises. Abraham, the one who took Isaac up to a mountain, his son, and was willing to sacrifice him, right? Abraham did some good things. But listen to how DeYoung describes Abraham. You might think that God wanted to bless Abraham because he was such a swell guy. But if you thought that, you'd be wrong. Abraham didn't know God at all when God called him. And even after God called him, 
Abraham could still be a liar and a bit of a scaredy cat. Abraham had only two things going for him. God promised to bless him, and Abraham believed God's promise. Christless reading of Scripture, where we take heroes and, and try to emulate them. And what Jesus is saying here is that resurrection life, this resurrection life from death to life, is not found in emulating the heroes of the Bible. It's found in attaching yourself to the hero of the Bible, Jesus Christ. So what are the false signs of life? First, a Christless spirituality. Second, a Christless reading of Scripture. And finally, a Christless glory. Jesus says, look at verse 41. I do not receive glory from people. He was saying, I seek to please my Father. I'm not seeking to please you. I'm seeking to please my Father. But you, on the other hand, verse 44, receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the Holy God. And these all explain verse 43. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. See, in Jesus' day, there were a bunch of self-proclaimed messiahs. They would come all the time. And what Jesus is saying is these people come, they proclaim to be a savior. And the reason that you receive them is because they flatter you. They tell you what you want to hear. They tickle your ears. They, in other words, they're feeding your glory. And so when they, when they do that, you receive them. In fact, later in, in the gospel of John and John 12, Jesus basically summarizes the tragic place that his fellow Jews find themselves when he says they loved the praise from men more than praise from God. It feels good when someone pats you on the back, doesn't it? It feels really good. It feels good when someone says, you're the, you're the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. You know, that, that praise from men, it can almost, it can operate like a drug. It can become an addiction where, where you, you begin to search it out. You know, like the, like the next hit of a drug, I need, I, need a, I need a praise, I need something to affirm me. And sometimes that searching for it moves into manipulating to get it. Sometimes that manipulating moves into outright lying to get it. Sometimes from lying, it moves to hurting someone to get it. Right? That we want that praise so bad. Now, what is Jesus saying here? He's not saying that we shouldn't encourage one another. He's making the point that that glory that we seek from other people cannot give life. It cannot sustain. And those of you, all of us, to some degree, seek this out. You know what it's like when you seek it out and you get the rush of somebody praising you and then minutes later, day later, what do you get? Some sort of criticism, some sort of rebuke that falls on, that makes you fall on your face. That it's fleeting. It's so short. So what's the solution? Solution is not to quit seeking affirmation. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, I want you just to quit seeking affirmation. He says, no, you were created to receive affirmation. You were created to receive glory. But you were created to receive it from the right place. Verse 44, to seek the glory that comes from the only God to seek affirmation and glory from God alone, to believe Zephaniah 
He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exalt over you with loud singing. To believe Ephesians 2, 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You know what that means? It says that we're raised up with Jesus. It means that God the Father, when we're in Christ and raised up with him, honors us and glorifies us just like he does his own son. That we receive that roar of the Father. You know, some of you grew up in homes where you didn't receive affirmation from your mother or father. Maybe you grew up and instead of affirmation, you received rejection from your mom, from your dad. Or maybe if it wasn't outright rejection, you received silence. Just silence. Never received that positive affirmation. And what that can do is it can, it can send you into a life where not even realizing it, you're craving that affirmation from your mom or dad. You're craving for your mother or your father to say, I'm proud of you. And the problem is that oftentimes, depending on the situation, that can be a rabbit trail that you never get what you want. It can lead to despair, to discouragement, because your mom or your dad fails you once again. And even if you get it, if you get the words that you were waiting to hear from your mom or dad, it's never enough. Jesus says glory from one another will never bring the resurrection life that he has for us. Only glory from the Father. You were made to hear the standing ovation of your Father, your heavenly Father. You were made to hear the roar of your heavenly Father over you. And when you're in Christ, you get that because you're in Christ. And when you start seeking that glory that comes from God the Father, you'll find that you seek it less and less from one another. 500 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his famous document, the 95 Theses, to the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And this is what launched what is known as the Protestant Reformation. And, and, and what he nailed to the door on that church can be summed up and has been summed up by five small Latin phrases. Solo scriptura, scripture alone. Solo gratia, grace alone. Solo fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And what I want you to see on this Reformation Sunday, 500 years later, we celebrate what happened is that those five solas are absolutely at the center of this passage. That the foundation of our faith is in Scripture alone. Not in the traditions of men, not in the teachings of men, but Scripture alone that points us to Christ alone. Not to the Old Testament heroes of the faith, ultimately. Not to the early saints of the church, but to Christ alone. Who saves us by grace alone. Not by any combination of our works. Through faith alone. Not through our works that produce something. All for the glory of God alone. Not the glory of men. 
And 500 years later, those five phrases are incredibly relevant today, especially when we understand the climate we find ourselves in, this spiritual but not religious, right? This, this culture that seems to be somewhat alive spiritually, right? There's activity. But at the foundation of the resurrection life that Jesus talks about are these five solas. Scripture alone. That points us to Christ alone, who saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, we confess this morning our tendency to find life, even spiritually, religiously, to find life in a generic God. We see it around us. We see it in our culture. We confess it in our own lives that we can read the scriptures for the wrong reasons. We can read the scriptures in the wrong way and absolutely miss the point of it all, which is you, Jesus. So we pray this morning. Father, on this 500th year since the Reformation began, that you would remind us of those simple five phrases that have such relevance today, that the foundation of our faith is in your scriptures alone, Father, that point us to your Son alone, Jesus, who saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, not works, and to your glory alone, Father. Would you make us a people that seek your glory, that seek the honor that you give to us in your son, Jesus, and to not seek it from others. And Father, I pray specifically for those in this place who have strained relationships with their mom or their dad, and who long to hear the, the affirmation of their mom or their, or their mother or their father, that you, Heavenly Father, would so pour out your spirit into their hearts that the resurrection life that you give would be enough, that they would hear your roar, that they would hear your ovation in Christ over them, that they would find rest there and rest there alone. Father, as we close in worship and as we sing and confess in Christ alone, would you fill our hearts with the very life of Jesus Christ? We pray this in his name. Amen.